Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm Jem Daduchu and what we do is we take a piece of pop culture and we reveal the real history underneath it. And to be honest, I've been making things tough for myself over these last, I don't know, eight, nine podcasts because it's hard to get some history out of Monopoly that genuinely, if you haven't heard that one, I'm quite proud of the fact that I'm able to give you an entire history podcast out of the board game Monopoly. Last week, we did ABBA. And their song, Money, Money, Money. The thing is, all of the ones I've done so far, Lord of the Rings, for example, they've all been about things that clearly aren't historical, but I show how there's actually a historical conversation to be had about them. But this time round, I'm going to do something in a way a little bit more obvious, but I promise I'm going to take you on an interesting journey because this time round, I'm going to be talking to you about the book slash films of Last of the Mohicans, which means we're going to have to talk about the Seven Years' War. We're going to have to talk about 19th century American settler expansion. And we're going to have to talk about films and which ones get to be remembered. Let's start things off. If, if, if you want to be literary about it, The Last of the Mohicans is written by James Fenimore Cooper. And he wrote it in 1826 of a series of historical novels, all sort of set around sort of the same time, largely with this sort of central character of Hawkeye, as he's known amongst the Native Americans that he works with and has been raised by. But his real name is Natty Bumpo, which hasn't aged well. This is because Cooper wrote Lost of the Mohicans in 1826. So people are still alive at that time who could just about remember the American War of Independence, for example. It's a very interesting time in American history. The, the White House was built within living memory. The British Army came in and burnt it down, or partly burnt it down, within living memory. Less than 10 years before this book was actually... Oh, sorry, about 10 years before this book was written. So Cooper is therefore writing 
technically about something in the past, something that, let's say, his father and grandfather would remember better than, than he would. And indeed, he wasn't actually alive at the time of Last of the Mohicans. But the world hadn't changed too much since then. Like I said, an American revolution, perhaps to one side for a moment. So there's the book. And then what's interesting is it's really caught the imagination. In America, at least, the book is quite often put onto school syllabuses to, to be read. And just like Shakespeare might be re read in the UK, it's an important piece of literature. However, it's one of a number of books. I think there's five of them in total about this sort of era and sort of like heroes and so on and so forth. But it's only one that gets all the, the love. And indeed, by about 1950, there's already been about five different movies about it. So while I'm, yes, already referenced the book, already talked a little bit about the book. The reality is I'm talking about the most recent movie called The Last of the Mohicans, starring Daniel Day-Lewis and directed by Michael Mann. Academy Award winner Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, The Last of the Mohicans. As I said at the beginning, at the start, we're going to talk a bit about movies. Because Last of the Mohicans, you might have sat there and gone, either, is there a movie of that? Or, did Daniel Day-Lewis really do a kind of action movie? Academy Award winner, Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, or maybe... What movie? And this is the thing. We're talking. Look, Michael Mann. He is an excellent director of thrillers, and this was really in his golden patch because the movie he did just before this was a TV movie. It was relatively low budget, and it was called L.A. Takedown. And you might sit there and go, "So, Jem?" Well, he then went on to do Last of the Mohicans, and then the next movie he did is the first movie to bring together two of the titans of acting, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, in this movie called Heat. This Catan mouse game between this LA detective and this bank robber and you know who's going to get who kind of thing you see me doing thrill seeker liquor store hold up sort of born to lose tattoo on my chest no I do not right what's this got to do with LA takedown because Michael Mann took the entire story and plot of LA takedown this solid tv movie and made it as Heat, but got better actors and had a bigger budget. And Heat is considered one of the great crime capers of all time. People remember Heat. People remember The Godfather. But there are so many movies out there, really good films, that don't get remembered. And it's not even down to the actors, because you're sitting there going, well, OK, Godfather Part 2 and Heat, and both of those had Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. So clearly everybody remembers their good movies. Well, no, because there's The Untouchables in the 1980s, Kevin Costner movie, where Robert De Niro plays Al Capone. Interestingly, he plays Al Capone with a Brooklyn accent, which is weird seeing we're in Chicago. But anyway... That is a very, very good film. If you have not seen The Untouchables, or if it's been years since you've seen The Untouchables, then you're probably going to sit there and be very pleasantly surprised. You know, Sean Connery's career lasted decades, but he only won one Oscar, and it was for The Untouchables. Again, decided to play an Irish-American cop with a Scottish accent, much like he played a Lithuanian submarine captain as a Scottish man. What gives you the right to file on my ship. He's a little limited, but he's great in, in that film. And it is a great movie, but Untouchables doesn't get remembered. And nor does Last of the Mohicans, even though this is a super well shot, brilliantly directed, exciting, well acted... Academy Award winner, Daniel Day-Lewis. ...tour de force of early American colonial history. 
Now, if you don't know the, the plot of Last of the Mohicans, that's okay, that's, that's fine. But it opens up some really interesting parts of history. Going back to Daniel Day-Lewis. Academy Award winner, Daniel Day-Lewis. When he did this in, in 1992, it was actually filmed in 91, he'd already won an Oscar. And he was obviously to go on and win three Oscars. He's retired from acting once before. He is currently retired again. We'll see if he comes back again. But he's basically one of the greatest actors ever. But we don't tend to remember him as a sort of an action hero. But this is your chance to see him do that. And he does it really well. But in his usual actorly way, he was very much into method. What What is a me method acting? There's this guy called Stanislavski who basically says to really bring out the truth of the character, you have to get as close to the character as possible. So sort of prior to the 60s and 70s, actors would learn their lines, they'd know where they'd stand, and they, they acted. Whereas we get into the 60s, and particularly in the 70s, we get, well, perhaps a very famous example of this is a movie that, again, perhaps isn't that well remembered, but has some amazing acting in it. We have Laurence Olivier, and we have Dustin Hoffman in Marathon Man where uh, one of the great things about Laurence Olivier, another great British actor, is he did adapt his acting style. If you look at him in something like Rebecca in the 1940s, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, I mean, that's a long list of awesomeness right there. Uh, you know, he's, he's very much uh, acting in the very traditional sort of theatrical way of acting. And, and that's great. That's fine. That's how people acted in the 1940s. But, you know, when we get later into the 60s and 70s, he's really become more naturalistic. But he still comes from this point of view of acting is make-believe. And there's this famous story. The reason why I mentioned Marathon Man is because there's a scene where Laurence Olivier is torturing Dustin Hoffman for, for information, keeps asking, is it safe? And... And he's sort of like he's using dental tools on his on Dustin Hoffman's teeth. It is a horrible, horribly effective scene. Not suitable for children, but it's a very powerful bit of uh, uh, acting. And anyway, Dustin Hoffman, because he's all into the method process, Stanislavski again, he hadn't slept for several days and he comes in, he looks awful. And it's absolutely suitable for this scene of sort of torture. But Laurence Olivier looked at him and just, you know, to the abuse he'd been giving his body and just went, just said to him, why don't you try acting, dear boy? And, you know, and so Lawrence looks at me, I'm like, my dear boy, my God, what happened to you? I feel so bad for you. And Dustin goes, wait, you know, I haven't slept for four days and I didn't change my clothes and I didn't take a shower. Because I said, oh, why, why, why not? It's the part, that's, I have to live the part. And Olivier steps back and looks at him and says, my dear boy, why don't you try acting? It's so much easier. <laughs> And if you like, that's the, that's the danger of method. You know, you can get so into it, you can start harming yourself. You know, if you're playing a destructive individual, you don't want to be destructive yourself. Daniel Day-Lewis is one of these people who very much immerses himself in the role. So he, for example, went into the forest and sort of foraged around, I think, with a sort of a survival specialist for about a month before he started filming. And he sort of wore the clothes even after takes, and he would sort of walk around with his musket all the time. Now, all of this pays off because because there is not one moment that you think that this guy from Britain is not somebody who's immersed himself in the forests of America on the frontiers and hasn't been tracking things for years. You know, it absolutely pays off. It is a remarkable performance in an absolutely great film. At the very least, at the end of all this, I hope that I'm sort of selling it hard enough for you to turn around and go, yeah, I, I would like to see this movie. And yes, he went on to win multiple other Oscars. Interestingly, he didn't win it for 
for any of his historical figures. He didn't do it for, win it for Los Mohicans, and he didn't win it for... Oh, no, sorry, he did win it for Lincoln. Apologies, that's his most recent one. Sorry. I stand corrected. My brain just, I don't know, triggered there for a moment. Probably this is where Greg adds a sound effect of my, my brain falling out my head or something. Anyway, Last of the Mohicans. Basically, he's this white man who's been raised by Native Americans, obviously called Indians. And even when we go back to James Cooper, the writer, he knew that there were different tribes and communities of these Native Americans. And so the Mohicans, the Mohawk people, actually is a collective of a number of different groups. And this is where we literally get the Mohican haircut from, you know, shaved at the sides and sort of a big crest along the middle of your head, because that's what they did in terms of their symbolic cultural tribal sort of attire, shall we say. And it's made quite clear in the movie that, and indeed in the book, that we've got different Native American tribes sort of ranged against each other. And that was something that had been going on well, you know, since since time immemorial, you know, just because people are vaguely ethnically similar does not mean they're not going to fight. They're going to fight over resource. They're going to fight over infringement of territory and things like that. There is kind of like this myth, if you like, that the, the Native Americans were sort of peaceful. They, you know, they were like any other culture. They had slaves, not all of them, but some of them, you know, so it's a complicated and complex society that is actually being sort of referenced Maybe not in a referential way, but, you know, in a semi-accurate way. And to take at least that much interest to write about it, as a white man in the 1820s, 10 out of 10 to, to Cooper on that, although he gets minus points for falling into cliche, calling them Indians and things like that. So he is a man of his time. However, by the 1990s, we're obviously more culturally aware of, of this kind of stuff. And clearly the reason why this movie got made and why it got a budget was because there was the monster hit of Dances with Wolves, another film that is really, really good. Another film surprisingly starring Kevin Costner, which is completely made up, but is a really fascinating story about this a man from the Civil War. He's a sort of a, a union officer who goes basically to the frontier before the frontier disappears and sort of initially is very sceptical about local Native Americans and then ends up sort of, in essence, becoming the Daniel Day-Lewis character, sort of like going native with them and sort of like siding with them against the white settlers. That is an amazing movie. Again, I'm actually going to say it's better than Last of the Mohicans. And if you don't shed a tear uh, towards the end of that film, a number of very sad things happen. For me personally, it might not be the most obvious one. I'm not going to say, I just, I, I want to tell you, but I don't want to tell you, because if you haven't seen Dances with Wolves, you, you, it's, it's a relatively long movie, but that is an amazing film. So anyway, clearly because that was a big hit and it was historical and it was sort of like very heavily featuring Native Americans, that be, kind of became big business. And so Last of the Mohicans got to be made. But they're actually from two very different timeframes, two very different periods. There's this idea of the Wild West. The Wild West only lasted maybe 20 years. The, the cowboys sort of driving cows across the country. Again, that sort of lasted maybe 20 years. You know, people obviously did become old, but in theory, you would not have become 
a young man coming into the ways of cowboying and then be an old man aged sort of 65 hanging up your spurs. It, it, was, it was kind of a one-generation deal. It wasn't something that was passed down father-son, for example. Technology and also sort of society just caught up with it. But this sort of like, there is this sort of great piece of myth-making. In, in Europe, we got the, the time of knights in shining armour. And in, in America, we got the time of the Wild West. And both of them are based on history, but both of them are completely distorted by legends. And it just wasn't like that during those eras. However, whereas we can say Dancers with Wolves is during the Wild West, actually, uh, Last of the Mohicans is more than a hundred years earlier. So, when was Last of the Mohicans set? Well, it very clearly states right at the beginning, of, it's 1757. And you'll be pleased to hear that one thing that's been updated is the hero, Hawkeye, is no longer called Natty Bumpo. Well, let's face it, Natty, short for Nathaniel anyway. The only time they refer to him as, by his full name is Nathaniel Poe. So they took the bum out of it. Uh, you could say Daniel Day-Lewis has no bum in this movie. Academy Award winner. Uh, I thank you. And what's great about the movie is it's a mixture of historically accurate events and action, and there's also a romance in it. So it's one of these movies that's, and, and indeed the book, it's kind of got something for everybody in it. And again, definitely go out and watch it, okay? However, as I said, it's set more than a century earlier than the Wild West, and 1757 is an important year because if you're American, you may or may not know this, but this is during the French and Indian Wars. But if you're European, you're going to say this is during the Seven Years' War. Now, the Seven Years' War went from 1756 to 1763. So it did last seven years, unlike the Hundred Years' War that lasted more than 100 years. OK, anyway, the point is this. What's going on? Because in the 1750s, America is a British colony. It is not independent. We all know that sort of happened in the 1770s, okay? So Britain is still in charge at this point of the, the colonies of America. And in 1756, Britain and France and lots of ally allies on both sides, this can get... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Very complicated, very quickly. I will try and make it relatively straightforward, okay? But basically, France and Britain in the 1750s were the two biggest imperial powers. And whereas they were close to each other in terms of you know, the actual countries of, of Britain and France, they were also very close to each other when it came to their imperial possessions as well. Canada was French at that time. You've got Quebec, which is, you know, still they speak French there. And the reason for that is because, you know, it was the cornerstone of French imperial power in North America. And you had the whole of, of Louisiana with the, the Louisiana Purchase. It's complicated about that one, but the Louisiana they're talking about is much bigger than the state of modern state of Louisiana. It's this huge stretch from basically Canada down, down the Mississippi Delta to, you know, New Orleans. Oh, there you go. Another French name there. So it's this huge swathe of land, which was owned by the French, not by the Americans, not by the British. Now, obviously, Native Americans, would would technically say they own the land, but you know, let's let's not go there. We're talking about the time of empire, shall we say? Basically, let's not go into the triggers of the war because really, what it was about was France and Britain kept bumping up against each other in in Asia, in North America, and, and obviously in Europe too. So there needed to be a showdown, and it turned out the Seven Years' War was that showdown between those two nations, and. It, it's a cutting a seven-year story short, it turned Britain from an imperial power to the imperial power. You've got things like uh, the Battle of Plassey over in India, where basically by the time the Seven Years' War was over, the entirety of Bengal was given over to British interests. I've got to be careful here. It wasn't technically run by the British Empire because it was run by the East India Company and would be for about another hundred years. But suddenly, when did Britain stop being one of the powers in India and becoming the preeminent power? The answer is the Seven Years' War. You know, when did France get kicked out of North America? The answer is the Seven Years' War. And there are some famous people in this. There's Clive of India, Clive being his surname, not his first name. That's a British general who fought out in India and basically won all his battles. There was one huge battle where the British forces were heavily outnumbered. But you'll be pleased to hear Clive wasn't just a smart general. He was just smart. And so he worked out that, you know, if we pay the other army more money than they're being paid at the moment, maybe they'll fight on our side or at very least go away. And that's exactly what happened. So Clive was doing his thing in India. There's there's fighting going on in, in the Caribbean. There's fighting going on in Europe. There's fighting going on in North America. 
This is, by any stretch of the imagination, a world war. The campaigns are spreading over just as much territory as something like World War I, for example. A pretty uh, amazing scope of what's going on here. And the, the pivotal year is actually a couple of years later, 1759, where pretty much everything that could go right for Britain does go right. That's where you get Wolfe, General Wolfe, capturing Quebec. He dies in the process, but the French at that point have no option. They've, they've got to capitulate about what's going on in Canada. So that's how it becomes a British colony. And it's worth pointing out, at the end of the American Revolution, Canada was still a British property. And also at the end of the American Revolution, more than 100,000 American colonists felt themselves more British than American and left America to live in Canada. And 100,000 in the 1780s is a lot of Americans. So I digress slightly. That's all going to happen a little bit later on. But in 1759, as I said, you know, so there's the successes in North Africa, sorry, North America. There's successes in, in India. Some key battles are going on there. There's also an amazingly epic battle that happens between the French and British navies. Now, a few years earlier, I love this story. There's this Admiral Bing, B-Y-N-G, uh, of the Royal Navy, and his job is to go to uh, the Balearic uh, Islands, you know, Ibiza and those sorts of things. So it's relatively near Spain. And the French had invaded, and basically he turned up, he had an inconclusive fight with, uh, he had a small uh, fleet and he had an inconclusive fight with the French fleet, but he realized that while the French fleet was there, it's going to be almost impossible to land the sort of marines and recapture the, the island. So he sat there with his officers and basically said, so what should we do? We could go back to Gibraltar and we could re, you know, we could re-equip and sort of fight them again and do a better job next time. Or we could try landing, which could end up in, in failure. Or, you know, there could be other options. We could sort of like try and blockade it or something like that. In the end, they all agreed to go back to Gibraltar and try again. When they got back to Gibraltar, Bing was basically released of his duties and he was basically sent to London to face a number of different charges, including cowardice. However, ultimately, most of the things were dropped, most of the cases were dropped against him. And, you know, as an admiral, he would have been a wealthy man and well-connected. And everybody assumed that basically he would get a slap on the wrist and that was it. But he was specifically found guilty of not doing his utmost. And because of that, kind of shockingly, he was ordered to be shot. And so he was put onto the deck of one of his ships. He was allowed to hold up his own handkerchief. And then at the, as he dropped the handkerchief, he was shot dead. Voltaire, even French writer and, and sort of satirist, even wrote in one of his plays a passing line going, you know, the British like to keep themselves motivated by shooting the occasional admiral. This really did shock everybody, probably Admiral Bing the most. But why am I mentioning all of this? Because... A few years later, we've now got Hawke, the leader of a Royal Navy fleet who's up against the French near a place called Quiberon Bay, which is a big bay in Western France. And there is a huge storm surging. Now, if you look at sort of naval engagements, almost all of them are fought in good weather because it's very hard to shoot in rough seas. And, you know, you've got Mother Nature to worry about rather than cannonballs. 
But he had the French fleet on the run, and unbelievably, he ordered his fleet to follow the French fleet into what they thought was the safety of Quiberon Bay. Quiberon Bay, obviously, as a bay, it was more protective from the harsh seas, but also it had shoals there. And, you know, it was almost insane. The French were so surprised that the Royal Navy continued chasing them into the bay that they were caught completely unawares. Now, nobody knows this for a fact, but there is sort of like general opinion that that uh, Hawke, the reason why he went for it is was in the back of his mind, is he has an opportunity to do his utmost. And the last guy who didn't do his utmost and played it a bit safe ended up being shot, you know, Admiral Bing. So he went in and it turned out to be one of the biggest Royal Navy successes and victories ever. You know, it wasn't really eclipsed until we get to Trafalgar a full generation later. Now, it is worth pointing out that during the Seven Years' War, there are a number of players that pop up in later later times do sort of like start their military careers here. There is a very young Nelson, obviously not a lord at this point, started his career at the tail end of the Seven Years' War. Also, in America, you've got somebody leading one of the militias, a lieutenant called George Washington. Now, this brings us all neatly back to the Americas, because... We call it the Seven Years' War, as I've already said, the Americans call it the French and Indian War because it was largely that the French had more soldiers in North America than the British did. The British uh, largely had militias. And there were a very small amount of, you know, red-jacketed, you know, uh, British soldiers, but the French had far more regular soldiers there with, like, cannons and so on and so forth. The French were better equipped. Both sides, however, we're we're talking 1750s here, um, North America, America's, uh, particularly the East Coast, is largely one gigantic forest. And so both sides used Native Americans to sort of bolster their forces, to help find their way through the forests, to perhaps prepare ambushes against enemy troops and things like that. It did lead to, you know, you've got lots of settlers at, at that time. And if the men are out fighting, you just got the women and children at home. And there were a number of raids. This is actually shown in the movie. Or, you know, these are Native Americans attacking farmsteads. They're attacking them partly out of opportunity, partly out of revenge. You're on my land, for heaven's sakes. But that doesn't really excuse the execution of civilians, okay? And this is, again, uh, sort of like slightly uncomfortable comfortable conversation because there's no doubt that the Native Americans, you know, everybody loves using at the at, at the moment modern morals on things in the past. And, you know, you basically everybody in the past was racist, okay? And in the 1750s, nobody had abolished slavery. So, you know, everybody's a racist slave owner. And the Native Americans, you know, it was part of their traditions and cultures to actually hunt, have hunting parties against sort of like enemy groups. So they were waging war in a way that made sense to them, but is definitely queasy to the modern listener. So yeah, so there were massacres of local populations, but also something that, you know, George Washington ended up becoming kind of important for history. I think we can all agree on that. He's been lionized. There are all these myths around him, like he, I cannot tell a lie. He never actually said that. Or, you know, I chopped down the cherry tree. Never actually happened. He had wooden teeth. No, that's not true either. Anyway, so that, you know, there are silly stories about him, but they're also sort of like great stories 
stories about him. And he did lots of impressive things. But one of the things even sort of like his defenders find very difficult to to sort of like to, to support is during the uh, Seven Years' War, the French-Indian War, he was a lieutenant in charge uh, of some Native American militias, sort of soldiers, if you like. And after a battle, he basically lost control of them and they scalped and massacred a number of prisoners of war, French prisoners of war. That's not good. That doesn't look good for anybody, but particularly if we're going to turn, sort of pretend that George Washington is some kind of military genius, you know, military geniuses don't allow massacres to happen, okay? Let's sort of sidestep that for a moment. Another fun fact is the, the U.S. Army Rangers, you know, these are some really tough guys, specialist forces which exist today in the U.S. Army. They were created for the French Indian War. So the very first U.S. Army Rangers were actually... Uh, working for the British and would have considered themselves, you know, American British colonists, which I find kind of uh, an un unusual sort of counterintuitive thing. But if you like the cornerstone, the thing that took them so much time to film, they ended up having to put loudspeakers around this huge area where they'd sort of set things up in the movie of Last of the Mohicans, was the genuine siege of Fort William Henry. This genuinely happened in 1757. The French cannons, they brought in cannons and mortars to pound away at this largely wooden fortification which was held out by a small amount of British regular forces and then American sort of colonial militia were also there. And spoiler for the movie, uh, spoiler for history, the French win. Now, what's interesting is we then have this very sort of European way of finishing a battle, which also kind of confused the Americans at the siege of Yorktown in the 1780s during the American War of Independence, where after all this fighting between the, the French and, and American militia and, and the, the British in, in Yorktown, and then the same thing happened here, you know, they basically come out, they exchange pleasantries, and they're allowed to sort of like march away with their flags held hard. It's like, hang on, didn't we win? But what happens both in the movie and happened for real is that as the British forces were leaving, they were attacked, they were set upon. We basically have another situation, just like uh, I, I mentioned with uh, George Washington. The Native Americans descend on these people who had surrendered, they'd finished the battle, they are massacred. Uh, now, the exact numbers are interesting because James Cooper in Last of the Mohicans, he's very much of the time where Native Americans are savages and, and basically, and yeah, he, he didn't have the first-hand reporting of, of it either. So he basically makes out that about thousand people are massacred. Now, the real number seems to be closer to a hundred. I think we can all agree that's a hundred too many, but it's an example where we actually get a piece of real history put in the middle of a fictional story. Now, by the end of the war, as I said, the French had ultimately lost huge... Interestingly, in Europe, Nothing changed. The territories didn't change at all. And we needed somebody to keep fighting the French in Europe. So it's a good job that we'd allied with Prussia and their leader at the time was this guy called Frederick the Great. So it's a good job that we've got a you know, a guy called The Great on our side. Frederick the Great during the Seven Years' War just fought an, an obscene amount of battles. He didn't win them all, but at some points he was fighting on three different fronts between the Russians, Austrians, and French, and he won more than he lost. Prussia was locking down France in Europe so that we could fight in the rest of the world. And going back to the American War of Independence in the 1770s and 80s, 
our biggest flaw, Britain's biggest flaw in that battle, because actually, if you look at how the British forces did in America, they did okay. But the point is, we had no European ally. So France could pour all their resources into stirring up trouble and supporting the American colonists, because they didn't have to worry about the equivalent of Frederick the Great then. So if you like, the Seven Years' War is the is it, it, sort of like the, the dry run for the American War of Independence. You've got a lot of the same players, but, you know, lessons had not been learnt by the British, but absolutely, by the end of the Seven Years' War, Britain was the supreme power. The last thing I'm going to tell you about all of this is occasionally you will see Queen Elizabeth II riding around, not in an open-top carriage, but in this huge, monstrous gold carriage, which has got a gold roof on it. That was made for George III, who became king during the Seven Years' War. This is the interesting thing. George III was in three different wars. The uh, Seven Years' War, big victory for Britain. The American Revolution, big loss for Britain. And the Napoleonic Wars, big win for Britain. So he didn't do that badly, although he was really a figurehead. But in honour of the victory... That carriage was made for George as celebration, and it's so heavy, it weighs more than a ton, that the six horses that pull it cannot pull it uphill. It's impossible. So they have to make sure it's always on the flat. Also, it can't be going down a steep hill because that thing will pick up speed and smoosh the horses. So anyway, there we go. We've talked about movies. We've talked about history. We've talked about smooshing horses. Uh, we've talked about acting careers and different styles of acting. Lots and lots of things put together. This is why I love doing this podcast, because, you know, you start with a thing and it fires off into lots of different areas. And I really hope you found it interesting. Last thing to say is, as always, please, please spread the word, spread the love. Tell just one other person, you know, perhaps create a link to this podcast and tweet it out or put it on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. But please spread the love because, you know, we're working hard for you. And we, all we want in return is just for you to, to keep spreading the news. Thanks very much and speak to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.